Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. My buddy, the doctor in New York City, just sent me a text message of a new study that came out. Um, I'll give you guys the exact source. Hold on one second. What do we got here? Annals.org. I think that's the Annals of Internal Medicine. New study released uh, from South Korea. Basically, um, industrial masks and surgical masks don't work to stop COVID-19 from spreading. That's terrifying. Now, N95 masks do work, but it has to be airtight on your face. There has to be no way that the virus can get in. And then the other problem is, you know, you have to like kind of decontaminate before you take it off or at the very least be in a place where the virus isn't around anymore. Like a lot of, one of the main reasons these hospital workers are getting sick is because you could have on your N95 mask and then you could go to the bathroom and you take off the mask for a second, but the virus is on the mask and then you're screwed. So this thing is super duper contagious, and the fact that regular industrial masks and hospital masks don't work, um, surgical masks, that's terrifying. And um, what the hell, man? It's like, what, are we going to all walk around in hazmat suits? Because that's what would have to happen if we really wanted to be safe. So this is a terrible situation, really, really bad situation. I think that um, way more people have had it than, than we think. And so you got plenty of people actually walking around now with, with immunity. 
there was that study that came out about, I believe, was it L.A. or California? I think it was L.A., but the study showed that, like, way more people had it than they originally thought. And, um, yeah, that would indicate that there's quite a bit of herd immunity now. So I don't know, man, but it, it was a very short amount of time for the virus to take over the world. Another uh, thing I learned yesterday is that apparently our first case was here way earlier than they originally expected. It was here in, like, January, early January. Um, and they weren't saying that beforehand, but now they think that there's good enough evidence to, to make that, that point. And so, uh, you know, for everybody out there who was like, damn, I was really sick in early February and, or whatever, I've heard that a lot from people. Yeah, you actually may have had COVID. So that's a, that's a crazy thing. Um, but anyway, this is just me rambling because I got a text before the show. But let me tell you guys what is in today's show. Uh, it's a long one. A lot of stuff today. I got to update you on the new phase of the coronavirus bill. We have coronavirus bailout number 3.5. We'll talk about that. Um, there's a rant from a comedian that went viral on Reddit. It's a guy who's just obliterating the government for their terrible response to COVID-19. Um, we're going we're gonna to play that, talk about it. Mitch McConnell um, is back to pretending to care about the deficit and the debt which is hilarious because, of course, now the conversation that we were starting to have is, all right, let's give more stimulus to the people. And then he jams on the brakes, and he turns around, and he's like, the deficit, bro. What about the debt, bro? Um, And later on in the show, I will discuss what happened with the oil market over the past couple days, the absolute implosion, Joe Biden's VP. um, And we have um, Trump getting ready to uh, go to war with Iran, saber-rattling on Iran in the middle of all of this mess. So sit back and relax, because like I said, it'll be a long one today. Let's go ahead and get started, and we'll do that with the new coronavirus bill. So we have a new phase of the coronavirus bailout bills. They're calling this one um, phase 3.5, I guess you know, because the price tag on this one doesn't reach into the trillions of dollars. They're thinking this is not its whole, not its own new phase, but it's, you know, 3.5. It's like, this is a semi one. This is just a little bit, sprinkle a little bit, doesn't even reach a trillion dollars. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a relatively minor one, you know, the way that they're thinking these days. So Fox News reports the following about it. The Senate on Tuesday passed nearly a $500 billion coronavirus phase 3.5 relief bill that would replenish a small business rescue program known as the Paycheck Protection Program, provide hospitals with another $75 billion, and implement a nationwide virus testing program to facilitate reopening the economy. The measure passed by voice vote, which simply requires each side to holler yay or nay, with the loudest side winning ahead of the bill's passage, Some Republicans voiced their frustration that there was not a full roll call vote, even as some senators remained at home amid the pandemic. This is not acceptable, Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, said on the the Senate floor. We should not be passing legislation without Congress actually being in session. Now, they go on to say, and Rand Paul does the same thing, where he's like, this isn't right. We shouldn't have the voice vote. We got to, like, actually record the votes, bro. Um... 
but did they they have the ability and they have the right to say no i'm going to make everybody you know go on the record to show them how they voted did they use that ability no they didn't so in other words vapid grandstanding somebody should really keep track of this and keep a record of this because this is not good you have the ability to say all right let's do it i'm forcing us to keep track of this and of course they're like See what? I don't. But what had happened was the sun was in my eyes, and I was looking down the road, and me and Craig and them was by the Safeway, and then I don't under what well, new phone who it is. <laughs> they, they don't want it to be recorded. They want to. They want a virtue signal and and grandstand like maybe I'm actually against this, and then do nothing to actually prevent it. So you know Mike Lee and Rand Paul are being ridiculous. Um, the progressives on this front, I wish the lefties, I wish Bernie Sanders, I wish these people, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, any of them, would do the same thing and actually invoke it. Like, no, I'm going to get us on the record. But nobody wants to do it. Because everybody knows that, or they have some idea that in the future, we're going to look back at these votes and be like, oh, what a gross, terrible thing. Now, perhaps this phase isn't as bad as, you know, the previous corporate socialism phase where we just handed over $4.5 trillion to corporate America and let them loot the treasury. Perhaps this isn't as bad as that one, but nobody wants accountability here. Nobody wants accountability. And so they're basically skirting accountability by not getting anything on record and just doing a voice vote. So um, it's a mess and it's stupid. And, you know, the Republicans are pretending to have some objections. They don't object. And they're not the Democrats, the the so-called progressives are not even pretending to object. There's a they're just sitting there whistling all day long. So um, now you might look at the terms of this particular bill and say, I don't know, Kyle, this one doesn't seem so bad because, like I said, there's some money for hospitals in there. Uh, they want to get a nationwide testing program, and the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses is pretty important. And I agree with you. This is not nearly as egregious as the previous bills. However, when you get a sense of what could have been put in this bill and wasn't put in this bill, you'll see yet again why the Democrats are just totally useless and uh, pathetic. So this is Jeff Stein from Washington Post. He does some amazing work, and he said the following. Things not in the bill. Hazard pay for frontline workers. By the way, pause. Strike one, you're out. Like, no, you, that is an absolute necessity, an absolute necessity. Hazard pay for frontline workers. Are you kidding me? Every single frontline worker should be getting at least double pay. And don't tell me we can't afford it when we just gave $4.5 trillion to multinational corporations at the blink of an eye, and then they turned around and laid people off and paid bonuses because there were no strings attached. So hazard pay for frontline workers, not in the bill. Money for states and cities. Mitch McConnell is literally saying file for bankruptcy if you have to, if you're a state or a city. Uh, elections security. So that has to do with, you know, switching the election over to like an all-male election because you don't want anybody showing up because who knows what the hell the deal is going to be with the virus at that point in time. More oversight on the bailout. There's no more oversight on the bailout. Um, food stamp money, super important. Rent freeze. Rent freeze. Not in this bill, and they could have put it in this bill. And, of course, the most important one that's missing, 
there's no more stimulus money in this bill. So in other words, that one-time $1,200 payment that some people got, because of course they means-tested it, um, and some people didn't get it too, because you have to have your bank account information on file with the IRS so they can do the direct deposit. If not, it's going to take longer to get to you. That one-time payment is still all you're getting. All you're getting. It's all you're getting. This is insanity. Look at how a bunch of other countries are dealing with this. We, you know, I've given you all the details, but whether it's the UK, there are some Scandinavian countries that are like, okay, listen, we're going to pay 75% or 80% of your wages in perpetuity for the rest of the crisis, and we're going to make it so that nobody's going to be unemployed. You're going to be furloughed. And then eventually you'll get back and you'll still have your job. So the government's stepping in and saying, we'll take over payroll for everybody. And then eventually, you know, we'll turn it back over. And when everything gets back to some semblance of normalcy, and we're good. Now here in the U.S., what's happening? Everybody and their mother's getting fired. 22 million people in a, in a short time span. It might be an actual record, like a literal record, might surpass the Great Depression. The previous record for one week, people filing unemployment, was about 680,000, 690,000 people. This was during the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. Recently, what have we had? 3 million, 6 million, 6.6 million, 5 million. Those are weeks. Each one of those is in a week. And then, I swear to God, the headlines this last week, where it said 5 million people, the headlines were like, oh, it looks like we're improving. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Each one of those weeks is on its own a record. And we're not handling this in an intelligent way. At the very least, at the very least, we should be doing a UBI at the very least and keep paying people every month at least for the duration of this crisis. I would like to see it, period, like a new Social Security for All type bill. Because if any, we need it. If this shows anything, it shows that. But no. In this bill that they're all, you know, jolly in, in Washington over, passing by a voice vote, no accountability, there's none of that stuff. And I don't see Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown in the Senate making a peep. What's the point of being, of being in the Senate or being in the House if you're just going to go along to get along like a sheep and do nothing for the people? You do realize that if you're an elected official, to one extent or another, you have a bully pulpit. You could literally go on the floor, give a speech, and start screaming at Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, and Nancy Pelosi and say, all of you have sold us out. All of you are useless. Yet Nancy Pelosi showing everybody her like super expensive ice cream in her $12,000 fridge and freezer. Everybody's struggling and can't pay the bills. We don't have a rent freeze. We don't have a UBI. We have no more stimulus money. There's no oversight on the bailout. There's no money for states and cities. There's no hazard pay for frontline workers. What are you doing? What's the point of you? Why should anybody vote for you if this is how you act? People want leadership. People want somebody to represent them. And they're not being represented. Nobody's representing them. Nobody's representing them. It's embarrassing, man. I mean, we're talking about Washington, D.C. is just packed full of lemmings, just sheep. Whatever Mitch McConnell says, 
yes, sir, I, I will do exactly what you want me to do, sir. Even the, the, the grandstanders like Mike Lee and Rand Paul, I don't know about all this. I might be against this to one extent or another, except not really, because I'm not even going to make it so that we have to have a voice, uh, a real vote. It can only be a voice vote. This is really bad. It's so bad that I'm going to let it happen. Useless! Useless! Bernie! Elizabeth Warren! Sherrod Brown! What are you doing, bro? Where are you guys at, skis? Where are you at? Where's your fire-breathing speech for hazard pay? Where is it? Where's your fire-breathing speech for more stimulus money? For a rent freeze? Where is it? Why don't you call out your leadership by name? Why don't you scream about it so it's guaranteed to make the news? Why don't you scream about it? You don't even have to do it on the Senate floor or, or, or the House floor, respectively. You could, you could do it in an Instagram video, in a YouTube video. Just scream a little bit at the leaders. Scream at Chuck Schumer. Scream at Nancy Pelosi. Scream at Mitch McConnell. Scream at Donald Trump. Say, are you kidding me? People are struggling. They're in dire straits. But no, because, you know, and I'm not kidding about this. You're going to say, Kyle, come on, that didn't really happen. I swear it happened. I swear it happened. They turned around and said, well, in the next bill, we'll do that, though. They've been saying that since phase one. When they did phase one, in the next bill, we'll, do, we'll worry about that. And then in phase two, the next bill, the next bill, the next bill. And then phase two, this isn't even a new phase, bro. This is 3.5. It's not even phase four. And you want, to, you want more stimulus checks and a rent freeze? The next time we do a full, the next time we do a full, uh, phase, then maybe we'll include that. Watch, they're going to go 3.5 to 3.75. <laughs> oh, man. Everybody's struggling, and they're just... <laughs> and uh, we're going to do the story in a little bit, but guess what? It's already happening. It's already happening. After they implement corporate socialism, so the corporations cannot fail under any circumstance, they, they $4.5 trillion, let corporate America loot the treasury, fully taxpayer-funded as far as the eyes can see. Mitch McConnell turns around and goes, you know, I, we're spending too much money here. We better watch it because of the debt. They didn't say Dickie McGee's acts when it came to the multi-trillion dollar tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the rich. They didn't say anything about the debt. They didn't say anything about the deficit. They don't say anything about the debt or the deficit when it's the war in Iraq or any of these bomb fests, multi-trillion dollar wars. They don't say anything. And when it came to implementing corporate socialism and handing the keys to the Treasury over to corporate America, they didn't say anything about price. Now, when we're like, people need another stimulus check. Bro, I can't do this. I don't have the money. Pathetic. What's the point? What's the point of what these guys are doing? And you wonder, you wonder why Congress has like a 22% approval rating. Because of this. And they all, they, everybody gets on their high horse. When you have an election and one side wins, everybody gets on their high horse. Ha <laughs> ha, they like us. They really like us. No, they don't. Because again, go back and do a poll in a couple weeks and the approval rating will be 22% again of Congress. Why? Everybody knows they're voting for a lesser evil every time they vote. Everybody knows that they're all evil. We're watching it unfold right in front of us now. Not a single one of these people is fighting for you. Not a single one of these people cares about you. Even the ones who are nominally better, for whatever reason, they've been duped. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they're telling me the truth when they say in the next bill we'll get around to doing something that maybe isn't objectively terrible. 
What a mess, man. What a mess. They don't work for you. They don't care about you, whether it's the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Let me tell you who they represent. Their donors. They represent their corporate donors. That's who they represent. And they've never made it more clear than in this crisis. Okay, now, speaking of uh, ranting on this topic, here we go. You're going to love this. Let me set this up for everybody. There's a guy by the name of Vic DiBetetto, and um, this is him right here. He's a comedian, and he went in his car and ranted about Washington, D.C.'s response to COVID-19, and this went viral. It blew up on Reddit. You know, I saw it all over the place on Twitter, um, and it went viral for good reason. Let's see what he had to say. Profit, not income. Profit. And all that means you pay to look at 
salaries and bills and everything you needed to pay to run a company for three fucking months. So every time you made three billion in a quarter, if you had just put one billion in the bank, you'd have forty billion in the bank after ten years. That's not even including interest. But no, you greedy cocksuckers have to get bailed out again from our taxpayer money, and then you shit on us by not giving us a real break on our mortgages, credit card bills, or car payments or anything. And the government allows this. We get fucked. We bail you out, we get fucked. Rich, glad to repeat. You dirt-neck fucking piece of shit should have had more than enough money to keep paying your workers and give everyone a break in mortgage payments the way I said for the time being. And again, I'm not saying to wipe the snake clean. I'm saying to just add the missing mortgage payment to the back end of everyone's loans. Do it for everything. The car lease is now three months longer. The credit card payment is now three months longer. The mortgage payment is now three months longer. You want to help the American worker, you can eliminate all payments due until this is over. That way, unemployment and stimulus checks would only be needed for food. That is what the American family needs now. That would help us, you greedy cocksuckers and your government lackeys who suck the balls of the big corporations and shit on the people are just as bad. Shame on you all. There could be a real plan in place, a real plan to get people through these next few months, a real plan to be testing, a real plan to allow workers who are considered non-essential to not worry about catching a virus and losing their house. You do the right fucking thing, you peckerheads. Having to tell the government what to do because they have their heads in their asses, that's what fucking ticks me off. That was, without question, the most New York rant I've ever seen. <laughs> From one New Yorker to another. I know a thing or two about New York rants. And this dude, that's like the ultimate New York rant. And I actually, I don't even know if he's from New York. He could be New York, New Jersey, you know, somewhere in the area. But um, that was great. And uh, I've now seen about a 1,000 people saying that Vic needs to run for office. Uh, I agree with that. Knowing nothing about his politics, and, you know, hey, listen, you could watch that, and he might lean right, he might lean left, but the thing that's clear is that he wants a solution to what's going on right now, and the things that he's proposing and putting out there are very straightforward and would-be solutions. So, you know, hey, I just went through it in the previous segment, but they're doing phase 3.5 of the corona bailouts, and here's what still Still, at this late date, 3.5 bills in. Here's what's not in it. Hazard pay for frontline workers. Money for states and cities. Many of them are on the verge of bankruptcy. And Mitch McConnell literally said, let them go bankrupt. Um, Money for election security because we want to transfer over to an all-male vote for the upcoming election because we don't want to spread the coronavirus more. Um, More oversight on the bailout. There's no oversight on the corporate bailout. So there's $4.5 trillion. Corporate America is eluding the Treasury. We've fully implemented corporate socialism as regular people struggle. No food stamp money, no rent freeze, no more stimulus checks, no UBI. So everything that is an actual solution is not in this bill. Not in this bill. And beyond all that, we're dealing with cowards. They're all cowards because none of them are like, okay, let's actually put this one on the record. They're doing a voice vote. So now people can turn around after the fact. And even if they supported it through voice vote, they say, who, me? All along I was saying, oh, this is bad and this is wrong and we need to do something about it and we got to stop it. Really? Because there's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of that at all. If you wanted to get it on the record, you could have gotten it on the record. 
but you didn't do it because you didn't want to do it. So, you know, listen, all of Washington, D.C. is full of corporate sheeps. This is, if there was ever a question, there was a single solitary question remaining in your mind as to who they're serving, it should be gone now. It's crystal clear who they're serving. It's crystal clear. They rushed it. I mean, seriously, stop and think about this. The freaking cruise line industry got a bailout before treatment for COVID-19 was covered. People were getting $30,000 bills. I remember because we covered the story on the show. $30,000 bills for COVID-19 treatment. As the cruise line industry, the government was rushing in to give the cruise line industry a bailout. Just so you understand about the cruise line industry, it's a, it's a sham. Like the whole thing, the way it's run is a ruse. What happens is they register in tax havens. And they don't pay U.S. taxes. They register in like Cayman Islands. They register in all these different places where they dodge taxes. Also, they basically kind of have indentured servants where they hire people from these other countries and they pay them trash. And then they turn around and say, okay, listen, I know we dodge our taxes. I know we don't pay any taxes. I know we have indentured servants, but we would like to rob from the American taxpayer now. We would like to get, you know, a giant bailout. And the government bails them out before we even pay for COVID-19 treatment. Are you kidding me? The only way in which that set of facts adds up, the only way that that makes sense is if it's crystal clear that the government is not working for the American people. That's the, that's the only way that that makes sense, is if it's obvious, if it's clear that the government is really working for the airline industry, the cruise line industry, all of Wall Street, the financial industry, the big banks, obviously the military-industrial complex. You have these giant mega corporations that were filing for and getting relief money under the small business you know, relief plan. It's all a ruse, guys. It's all a ruse. The United States of America is a corporatocracy. That's what we are. I'm not kidding when I say we fully implemented corporate socialism. By the way, if you're a right-winger, this isn't even capitalism. Because under capitalism, you know what's supposed to happen? Hey, let it have competition. May the better product, the better company win. And the other one, sorry, you're asked out. You're going to go out of business. What do you want me to tell you? That's the way it works. Sorry, you lost. That would be capitalism. Under capitalism, it's like, okay, well, if you failed, that sucks. I guess you're done. I guess you got to go through bankruptcy, a managed bankruptcy. But no, the way it works now, privatizes the profits and then socializes the losses. So... If I win, we win, the corporations and, and the executives. If we lose, we win because you're just going to give me tax money. I'm just gonna, you're going to hand me over the key to the treasury, and I'm going to go loot the treasury at the same time that people can't pay their bills. We don't have a rent freeze. We don't have a mortgage freeze. Thank God we at least have a student loan uh, freeze at the moment. But we don't have a rent freeze. We don't have a mortgage freeze. We got a one-time $1,200 payment that didn't even get to most people in the country. What a joke this is. We need a UBI. We need more stimulus money. We need to freeze the major bills. This is obvious, guys. This is why you see it's only in the United States of America. When you look at the numbers, every other country, there might be a slight uptick in unemployment. But they're holding relatively steady compared to us. Why? Because like I just told you, they're doing a plan where they furlough everybody as opposed to fire everybody. Here... People all over the place. So, yeah, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Pink slips for everybody. And we got, we're breaking records right now. 
22 million people in like a three or four week period. Are you kidding me? That far surpasses the Great Recession. That's Great Depression territory. So, you know, listen, they're not working for you. You elect them and they turn around and spit in your eye and only represent the wealthy and the corporations. They couldn't make it any more clear. And I don't know Vic's politics, but Vic is onto that fact. And he's saying, look, here's what you do. Do you want to solve it? And they're not going to do any of it. And what's pathetic to me is that that rant that Vic just gave, yes, he delivered it in only a way that this guy could deliver. Yes. But honestly, I would love to see something like that from Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, Ro Khanna, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Give me some fire-breathing stuff that is directed specifically at leadership. Put middle finger up to leadership because they're the ones who are leading this process and they're the ones who are clearly screwing over the American people and serving the corporations. But no, when you're in that bubble, when you're in Washington, D.C., it's much easier to just rationalize away your terrible actions. I don't know, everybody else is doing it. Well, congratulations on being just like the rest of them. You should be very proud. All right, next. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is back to his old tricks. He's back to pretending to care about the debt and the deficit. He was on Hugh Hewitt's conservative radio show, and he said the following. Yeah, that's a fact, an indisputable fact, and a... and a 12-day delay when we ran out of money for this popular small business program, the demand was enormous. They wanted to extract other things. Unfortunately, what they wanted to extract the most, I refused to go along with. And the White House backed me up. And that was, we're not, and that was, we're not ready to just send a blank check down to states and local governments to spend any way they choose to. We had a tranche. I don't know if I've ever seen that word before, (laughs) for them in the first bill, the $2.2 trillion bill, it has to be coronavirus related. And I think we need to have a full debate, not only about if we do state and local, but how will they spend it? But also, we haven't had much discussion about adding $2.7 trillion to the national debt in the way that could indeed also threaten the future of the country. Look, the only solution is ultimately... To begin to open up, I was encouraged the White House task force set up phase one. Many governors are now looking at beginning to carefully reopen. And I think that's the only way we can ultimately solve the problem is to begin the process of getting back to normal. Yeah, but Mitch, here's the problem, man. We can't. There's still a pandemic going on. Now, I'm just like everybody else, and I would love it if we got back to some semblance of normalcy. But you have to understand that when you do that, more people are going to die and more people are going to get sick. More people are going to get the virus. Um, So, like, yeah, there's a giant elephant in the room and a reason why we can't just simply, like, well, just go back to normal. Everything will be okay, but it won't be okay. Because stop and think about it. Even Even if the federal government and the state governments say, all right, everybody go back to normal, you think everybody's going to immediately agree? Like, oh, I'm sure everything's fine now. No, you're going to have a holdout of at least 20 or 30% of people. By the way, those people are going to be right because we probably will open up too soon. 
But 20 or 30% of people were like, are you kidding me? You want me to go to the movie theater? You want me to go to a restaurant? This is what you want me to do. You want me to go to a sporting event? No, I'm not going to put myself in that kind of danger. So the economy in many ways is permanently changing. My guess is that any business that has a system set up where you can work from home, you will be working from home from now on. That's my guess. And then there are other industries that really in the long run are just screwed, even with, like I was telling you guys this early on, I would have much rather seen temporary nationalization of the airline industry, for example. Why? Because you give them a giant bailout now, and then still nobody's going to fly. We've had a drop of 90 95% in flights. So what do you think is going to happen? You think that, you know, in a year or two, everything's going to be back to, oh, everybody's, the demand now for flying is through the roof. No, it's still going to be low. So with it still being low, they're going to come back to the government hat in hand in a year or two and say we need another bailout. So, you know, it would have been much easier if you just said, listen, we're going to temporarily, national, temporarily nationalize it. We're going to take it over. We're going to do payroll, and, and that's that. But you run the day-to-day, and you don't have to run a profit because it's nationalized, and then you turn it back over when we feel like we're back to any semblance of normalcy, however far that is in the future, when it can be turned back over to private hands. So, um, but look at what he's saying there. First of all, the federal government, Trump has made this clear many times on a variety of topics too. No, 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 it's not on me. The onus is on the states. The states need to do X, Y, and Z. It's not the federal government's job to do X, Y, and Z. We're going to help as much as we can, but understand first and foremost, the states should be dealing with this stuff. So they turn around, they say the state and the cities, they respectively, they need to really dive in and fight this problem on their own. Then the states and the cities do it. And then they turn around and go, oh, by the way, you're on your own. Boy, you just told them they had to do it. What if they don't have the funding to do it? They're not the federal government. Federal government has basically unlimited funds. They do. They have the ability to kind of do whatever the hell they want. It's because they have, we have a sovereign currency in the United States of America. You don't have sovereign currency in the individual states. So they can't just fire up the money printer and have it go brrr. They can't do that. So they need funds, this, the states and the cities. And so they jump in, they start fighting back. And then you have Mitch McConnell turn around and go, oh, yeah, by the way, I know we told you to go handle it. But now we're telling you that we might not give you any money. And if you're going to go bankrupt, go bankrupt. Oh, God damn it. I mean, that is really evil. But then, of course, the biggest point here is, Guys, it was a scam. It was a ruse all along. Mitch McConnell didn't say Dickie McGee's acts about the cost, about the price, about the debt or the deficit. When it came to the multi-trillion dollar 2017 Republican tax cut bill, it added trillions of dollars to the debt. He didn't say anything against it. He was just like, what do you mean? That's totally fine. I prioritize this, so who cares about the cost? Do it. He never said anything about it when it came to all the wars that he supported. I don't know what he's talking about. We've we got to take out Saddam Hussein, so take him out. Don't worry about the cost. Don't worry about the cost. This is a moral necessity. Why is it not a moral necessity to make sure people don't die of coronavirus? Why is it not a moral necessity to make sure that people could pay their damn bills? We don't have a rent freeze. We don't have a mortgage freeze. We don't have any stimulus checks going out now. We have the one-time payment. We don't have universal basic income. What do you think is going to happen, Mitch? How is this not a moral necessity? Of course it's a moral necessity. You guys gave $4.5 trillion to corporations. You handed them the keys to the treasury and said, by all means, loot away. You fully implemented corporate socialism. And now you turn around and say, 
but crumbs for regular people just to get by? I don't think we can afford it. These guys are such over-the-top corporate hacks, it's stunning. And the Democrats are the worst because they go right along. They go right along. Sure, give all the money to the corporations. Wonderful. And then they're like, can we please have some crimps for the workers, please? I'd really appreciate it. And Mitch McConnell's like, no, the debt's a problem. And, you're, and, and what are the Democrats going Okay, thank you, sir. May I have another, please? Can I borrow your stapler? Please tell me more about how the debt is very important and it's very bad and we need to fight it. They're such suckers. They're su- Actually, you know what? Scratch that. They're not suckers. Well, to be fair, the, the actual lefties are suckers. They are. Sorry, they are. But leadership of the Democratic Party, they're not suckers. They agree with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> they agree with them. And Mitch McConnell's idea is just give all the money to the corporations and screw the people. Why not? That's my job. That's why I'm here. I know who I'm serving. I'm serving my donors. My donors are the corporations. And Nancy Pelosi's like, totally, totally down. Maybe I'll pretend I'll do some kabuki theater and mimic like I'm against it, but I'm totally down. I'm for it. I'm for it. I'm with it. So th- this is what happens. This is where we are. The old deficit scam is back. They all, 100% of the time, if they just simply don't want to do something, they'll bring up the debt or the deficit. That's it. They view that as an all-encapsulating argument against it, simply when they don't prioritize something. They don't prioritize health care for you. They don't pr- prioritize college for you. They don't prioritize stimulus money, UBI. They don't prioritize that, so they're going to be like, I, get money. I don't have money. I can't afford it. I can't afford it, bro. But remember, they never made a peep about it when they were adding trillions to the debt and the deficit, and it was on the things they do prioritize, like endless war and like corporate socialism. So they're not, this is not an honest ideological debate. That's the point. And, you know, if you, if you want to say, hey, with a, a principled person, it is, like, you know, maybe Ron Paul and I would have an actual debate as to, how bad deficit spending is and is the debt inherently bad? Like, do we really need to balance the budget? I could probably have a, an actual discussion with Ron Paul on that because Ron Paul is principled and he actually cares about that. But these guys, Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi, they don't care. These are just the arguments they trot out because they're convenient at the time for what they want to do. He has no real concern about the deficit or he wouldn't have added trillions to it with that tax cut law and he wouldn't have added trillions to it with the bailout of the, of the corporations and the corporate socialism they just implemented. So it's not a real debate. They're charlatans, they're frauds, and they're playing all of you for suckers. And I would hope that at the very least, the true left-wing lawmakers would wake up and throw around their weight and start making noise. Because whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or any of them, they're TFG, man. They're too far gone. They are fully corporatist. And if you understand that what they're doing is evil and wrong and bad, maybe you should say something about it. And maybe you should do something about it. Okay, next. You'll never guess what industry is lining up and begging for a bailout. Actually, I say that, but of course you're going to guess. It's probably in the title of the video, and I have the picture right over my shoulder. But the golf industry <laughs> is like, 
Oh, I mean, we need bailout money. I mean, come on, bro. So here's what, uh, here's what they say. On Wednesday, Vice reported that a golf advocacy group, by the way, I didn't know that that was a thing, known as We Are Golf, is seeking a massive bailout from Congress and that what they are asking for would also apply to golf courses owned by the Trump organization itself. Wow. An influential golf political advocacy group with ties to Trump's company has reached out to members of Congress with a proposal to make federal coronavirus rescue loans more widely accessible to the golf world, including a change that could enable Trump's company to borrow millions if accepted, reported Greg Walters. The recent economic downturn has shuttered golf courses across the country and hammered Trump's company, which relies on income from over half a dozen golf courses, said the report. Trump's golf holdings accounted for roughly half of his reported 2018 income of $440 million. Wow. And the crisis is costing his properties an estimated $1 million a day in lost revenue. Trump's flagship properties in Florida announced hundreds of temporary layoffs this month. The proposed change would essentially allow private golf courses to seek loans as small businesses, even if they are owned by a parent company that is not a small business. Okay, that's nonsense. According to the report, Congress previously barred the Trump administration from spending bailout funds on his own properties, but this change could bypass that. Allowing individual golf courses to apply for small business loans would mirror a benefit already enjoyed by restaurants and hotels, said the report. Large national chains have used the exception, that exception to receive millions in loans from the program, including Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. The original... Uh, the original CARES Act lets food and accommodation outlets qualify so long as they employ fewer than 500 people in one physical location, even if they're owned by a larger company. So this is the exact kind of stuff that people are totally fed up with because there were, when you look at the small business, uh, you know, bailout package, they giant loopholes that were giving massive amounts of money to Businesses that are not, by any stretch of the imagination, small. The only way you could say that they're small is if you twist the definition in disingenuous, disingenuous, dishonest ways. And that's exactly what they're alluding to there at the end. Where, oh, if you have fewer than 500 people in one physical location, even if you're owned by a larger company, well, technically you qualify as a small business. No, guys, this is, this is the impact of having private money in our politics is that the donors to the politicians, it's the corporations, it's all these businesses. So that's why the government rushes in to bail them out when there's a crisis. And we still don't have a recurring stimulus payment. We still don't have UBI. We still don't have a rent freeze. We still don't have nationwide testing because the government's not working for us. The government's working for these businesses. So you got all these loopholes. Listen, the idea of actually setting up a system, a simple system that gives a, a bailout or gives a loan with no interest to small businesses, that I understand because the, a lot of the small businesses just would immediately go out of business because they can't weather this storm because they don't have the funds or the ability to do that. I understand that. But the problem is these programs are being totally misused and abused and there's giant loopholes and it's, it's applying to large businesses. And now you've got golf courses and some of them connected to Trump stepping in. Oh, my God, we want to bail out. We need some of that money. I mean, it just, 
none of these companies, none of these industries should have gotten a penny unless and until all the coronavirus treatment is covered. We have a rent freeze, a mortgage freeze, and people get a UBI. But, of course, all the other stuff is getting taken care of. We did $4.5 trillion in corporate socialism. We're getting, the Treasury is being looted by the wealthy, and people are getting Dickie McGee's act. So it's the exact opposite of how it should be. And, I mean, listen, you're talking to a guy here. Everybody knows how much I love golf. Um, but probably the last industry on the planet that needs or deserves a bailout is the golf industry. <laughs> I mean, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? By the way, you know, I've always said from the beginning of this that anything that could be left open should be left open. I think parks should be left open. Uh, I think that it, I understand if you want to shut down like the jungle gyms because, the, you know, kids will touch it and maybe somebody had the virus and touched it. I get all that. You want to not allow people on the swing sets, whatever, fine with that. But overall, can you have parks open as long as people are staying at least, you know, 10, or 10 to 15 feet away from each other? Why not? Why not? You're outside. You're outside. Um, golf, same thing. You want to have the rules and social distancing and have certain accommodations? I agree with that, too. But you're outside. It's less of a danger than being in a poorly ventilated in, indoor room. So, you know, maybe I'm being too lenient, but I always thought that – because now we're seeing it go overboard where – you have, like, literally parents being arrested because they took their kids to the park for five or ten minutes. I've seen the videos of it. Like, that's, okay, now you've gone too far in the other direction. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm all for social distancing. I'm all for shutting the businesses that need to be shut. But by and large, anything that's outside, as long as you enforce the distance people are apart from each other, I think that's okay. And so for golf courses, I mean, honestly, they probably should have never shut down in the first place. You just should enforce social distancing rules and – and, you know, make sure that um, you do everything you can within reason to make sure that the, the virus isn't spread. But I would much rather have them open and not need a bailout than have them not open and now the golf industry is, is begging hat in hand for a bailout. No, because you're not essential. Sorry. As much as I love golf, you're not essential and you shouldn't get bailed out. Um, you know, I, I guess you could have a a conversation about the no interest loans. That's a different story. But still, the fact that this is the stuff that the government's focusing on before we've ever done a UBI, recurring stimulus payment, rent freeze, mortgage freeze, or the thousand other things, hazard pay. We don't have hazard pay for people on the front line. It's inexcusable that this is what the priorities are. So um, I'm going to go ahead and file this under the no category and this, again, goes to show you how frivolous and hollowed out and corrupt and rotten our institutions are, that this is a serious conversation that we're having as people are 22 million people in a three or four week period lost their jobs, a record, a record. And we're having a conversation about bailing out golf courses. No, get out of here. All right, let me take a break, and then when we come back, Fox News is going to go after um, the people who are calling for social distancing. So we have that and much more, a lot to get to in today's show. Stay right there, guys. We'll be back.
I'm back, you bitches. What's up, bitch? All right. party going. That's what this is. This is a party. That's pretty clear. Um, Fox News, time to do some dunkage on the morons over at Fox. Fox News is taking the side of protesters who are asking to reopen the country. Um, but Greg Gutfeld, this guy here, is making some pretty strange arguments to try to make that case. It is kind of interesting where the class warriors are in this. The hard left, what we see, class versus class, denigrate Republicans as country clubbers and everything, where are they? The whole thing is flipped, right? They are now mocking the working class and marginalizing their concerns for a paycheck or for a job. Now we have outspoken liberals that are basically telling people, let's call them the working class, to stay home. And so they're, they're mocking these mass protests, which I understand that a mass protest isn't a safe thing to do in this time, but it's something that as an American you appreciate because they're rebelling against government overreach. You are telling me that I can't buy my seeds in a time of pandemic is overreach. So while we understand that it's a bad decision to go out in groups, as Americans, we get it. But meanwhile, the media embraces all sorts of class warfare. Black Panthers to Occupy Wall Street to Antifa to the Weather Underground. But somehow this is evil, when in fact it's actually uniquely, conspicuously American. The people don't like to be overtold by their government. Okay, I want to know on what planet the media supported Occupy Wall Street, the Black Panthers, and Antifa. I saw the exact opposite. I saw nothing but scorn and, and disdain and looking down their nose at Occupy Wall Street. They thought it was like a bunch of dirty hippies who were just causing trouble and uh, need to shut the hell up and, and get back to work. That's how, that's how it was viewed. But in the minds of the Fox News hosts, it's like, what are you talking about, man? The media, you know, they fully embrace these outsider working class movements. I wish. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If that was the case, I wouldn't have a job because that's, my job is to support you know, the working class movements, and, and I view the world through that perspective, not the elitist perspective that the media uses. If the media had my perspective, I wouldn't exist. I wouldn't need to exist. Um, so you wouldn't be able to have a show like I have. Now, what's amazing is he's talking about these protests. Yes, the protests are to reopen the country. And he's alluding to the fact that there are some left-wingers who are going after them. Well, yes, there are left-wingers who are going after them, but all the discourse that I've seen, and I know because we've had it on this show, it's actually very nuanced. So 
my point was, you, can't, you don't go out there and chant fire Fauci at these protests because then it's clear, well, you're not re- the main thing is not really like, I want to reopen the country because I've evaluated the evidence and we're good to go. It's just, you're, it's partisan hackery. You think Fauci is like a deep state plant who's trying to hurt Trump by hurting the economy, so now you're out there screaming fire Fauci and you're trying to reopen the economy, reopen the country. But when you speak to some of the people at the, at the protest, yes, you got to keep it real. Some of them made terrible points. One of them was crying that they couldn't get fertilizer. Another one was, <laughs> another one was uh, talking about uh, her hair. Oh, look, I haven't dyed my hair in a while. And it's like, Okay, well, on that front, yes, people are going to joke around and make fun because, it, you know, the person holding up a sign about freedom in front of a Baskin-Robbins, like, come on, it's, that, that's silly to, to view it that way. However, the other part of the conversation that I've had on this show, and I've seen many other lefties point this out, I've seen Anna Kasparian, among many others, point it out, it's like, well, hold on now. No, we do actually feel for these protesters, particularly because the only reason that they're out there is because... They can't pay the bills. And so now the movement is like, well, reopen the country. Okay, well, what about the virus? Forget the virus. Got to reopen the country because I got to pay my bills. I have, no, I have no ability to. I have no savings. I have no money. What do you want me to do? I got I to gotta go back out there. So they're protesting to reopen the country. In reality, the protests would make a hell of a lot more sense if they were out there saying, we need a UBI. We need more stimulus money. Because here's, here's the reality. If the government had done their job effectively, these protests would at least be cut in half, maybe 75%. Maybe there wouldn't even be any protests if people were getting a recurring stimulus payment, a UBI payment, if you did a rent freeze, if you did a mortgage freeze. Because you know what? When you don't feel that economic pressure, you're a lot more likely to be like, yeah, I'll sit back another, another month and watch reruns of I Love Lucy. That's fine. No big deal. It keeps it makes it so that I don't get the virus, and I'm, you know, I'm here at home and I'm healthy, and I could just watch TV a little longer or something. But the reason why they're out there is because the government failed them. So what does Greg Gutfeld do instead of, you know, doing his commentary and saying, "I think this is a, this is a failure of the government to not support the American people." What does he do? He goes after the lefties who are saying to these people. Listen, the science shows if you go out there, you're going to get the virus, so don't go out there. That's who he's going after. And he's trying to twist it as if the left-wingers who are saying that are somehow anti-working class. I think it's pretty pro-working class to not have them get the virus, to argue for them to stay safe. That's pretty pro-working class, if you ask me. So, I mean, this is, this is Fox News 101. They're, they're hacks. They're partisan hacks. And they'll twist everything to look like left-wing bad, right-wing good. And they wind up saying silly stuff like Greg Gutfeld is saying here. Listen, man, the reason why there shouldn't be the protests and we shouldn't reopen is because the virus is still ripping through the country, and the sooner we open, the more people get out there, the more people will die. You might not like that, but it's an ironclad fact. It is what it is. So now we have to deal with that fact. How do we deal with it? Well, like I said, all of your efforts, all of your commentary should be geared towards shaming the government and prodding the government to give these poor people a UBI check and to cancel rent and cancel mortgage payments so that they're okay and they feel like they don't have to go out there. So 
this caricature he has of this left winger who's only making fun of these protesters. I've seen a lot of nuance on the left talking about how a lot of these people are feeling economic pressure. Some of them are saying silly things, and we'll make fun of that. But by and large, a lot of these people are out there, and it's not all astroturf. It's not like the Tea Party was originally. I think a lot of people are feeling some genuine hurt. So um, Greg Gutfeld and Fox News, they're just doing what Fox News does here, which is twist everything and say left-wing bad, right-wing good. And it is the dumbest level of commentary I've ever seen and never fall for this silliness. All right, now we get Lindsey Graham, who's even worse than Greg Gutfeld, and perhaps that's unsurprising. Senator Lindsey Graham um, has found something to be outraged about as this virus rips through the country and people die and uh, Washington, D.C. sits on its, its hands and does very little for regular people, but lets corporate America loot the Treasury and fully implements corporate socialism. Let's see what gets under Senator Graham's skin. One that rightly pointed out, uh, you can't pay people more money to stay at home and by the way, to the credit of the Pennsylvania people, they're fighting to go back to work safely. we got to do it yeah. safely. Right. Well, so let me just put this in context. Uh, I want to make sure that if you lose your job, if you're furloughed, you're laid off because of mitigation, you've done nothing wrong, we want to make sure that you receive uh, 100% of your pay but what we don't want to do in unemployment is to pay you more than you actually received when you were working. Contrary to what the Pennsylvania governor says, it is not good for the economy to pay people more not to work than actually work. And that's what we're doing. And this has become a magnet to draw people out of the workforce. We'll never have an economic recovery until we fix this. You should get 100% of your wages up to $50,000, which you should never be paid more in unemployment than your employer pays you because that really skews the whole economy. The argument is, Listen, the unemployed uh, poor people are making too much money right now. They're getting too lazy and too comfortable, and he wants to put a stop to that. And he's pointing out, hey, we have an incentive problem here. If you're making more money from sitting out than going to work, then that shouldn't be the case because then you're going to want to sit out, and you're not going to want to go to work even when it's time to go back to work. That's the point he's trying to make. Why is he wrong? because he's looking at the wrong side of the equation. The people who might make a little bit more money from sitting at home are at the lowest end of the income ladder, the lowest end. They might get just a little bit more, but instead of saying, oh, this is a problem, we have to stop paying them that much. No, Lindsay, your real point should be, wow, we need to raise wages to a living wage because... People don't even make a living wage. They work full-time. They don't even make enough money to survive. That's unacceptable. Obviously, we should live in a country that values work enough where if you work full-time, you can survive. That's not asking that much. That's the bare minimum. That's the basic level of civility. That's the basic level, I shouldn't say civility, civilization. That's what a modern society would do. 
But instead of looking at the wages part of that equation, he's like, let's pay them less now and give them less money than they can survive on. I mean, look at, the thing, look at what he's outraged over in the midst of all of this chaos and mayhem and people hurt and dying and sick. Of everything in the world, everything on the menu to be outraged by. I got a long list, dog. Mine is super long. Lindsey Graham is doing a segment on Fox News where he's basically saying unemployed poor people are living too high on the hog and we got to take some of that money from them. They're making too much. Here's the situation, Lindsey Graham. Nobody in the country, nobody, nobody woke up on day one of the coronavirus and suddenly was more lazy. The reason why everybody's out of the workforce is because they should be out of the workforce right now because they're trying not to get the virus and therefore not maybe die from the virus. That's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. So this, you know, this lazy Republican argument of like, you know, when you hit a recession, when you hit a depression, when you hit an economic downturn and people are unemployed, it's like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, bro. But you're assuming that they weren't always doing that and got screwed by the system, which is out of their control. Guys, 22 million people lost their jobs in a three or four week time span. 22 million. Do those 22 million, oh, they just got lazy. Come on. We can let them live all high on the hog and whatnot. You should make more money from sitting on the couch. And if you go to work, well, once you get the context that these people who might make a little more money sitting on the couch right now, they weren't making a living wage before, I think the government is doing the right thing by paying them more. I do. I think you should at least give people a living wage. But the reality is, if and when the time is up, the payments will cut off regardless. And so they'll have to go back to work. And unfortunately, they'll be working for less. But really, really what Lindsey Graham should be out there doing is saying, Listen, man, we got to give, we got to pay people a living wage. It's not that we should cut the benefits going to people who need it right now. It's that we should raise their wages so that they actually are more incentivized to get back to work when the time is right. And the incentive is, oh, I might be making enough money to get by, you know, now during the crisis, but when the crisis is over, I'll make more when I go back to work. I'll make a little bit more money when I go back to work. So that's the real way that this should be looked at. But, you know, when it comes to conservative Republicans like Lindsey Graham, and that's not even fair because it's more about it's not that's not the determining factor here in his mindset. It's his elitism. When it comes to elitists like Lindsey Graham, he's always, you know, keeping an eye out. Let's make sure the poors don't get too much power. Make sure the poors don't get too much money or control or get a little too lazy or comfortable. We have to keep them miserable, and we have to keep them on the brink of total disaster because that's the only way we keep them, you know, get them to fall in line. I hate to tell you, dog, maybe your system sucks then, and we should change it. All right, now you're going to see exactly what Fox News has done to the country. And maybe the clearest example I've ever seen. The power of the mainstream media 
honestly is enormous, and we've been seeing it a lot lately. You know, you could argue one of the biggest factors that ultimately lost Bernie Sanders the race is the media. That's not to take away responsibility from him. That's not to say his strategy was perfect. No. Everybody knows I have detailed criticisms of Bernie and his campaign on that front. But you cannot deny the impact of a media that repeatedly pushes out there the narrative that you're not serious, you're not electable, you're too far left, all that stuff. Um, So it had a big impact. By the same token, you turn on the partisan Republican network, Fox News, and um, there are some real deleterious effects on the world because a lot of people watch this stuff and they think they're getting the straight dope from this network. And they're not. I mean, they're hacks, obviously. I'm not, I'm not excusing CNN and MSNBC for being corporate Democrat uh, propaganda central, but, you know... Fox News is that for the Republican. So interestingly, early on with COVID-19, there was a split on the right. You have some people who are more science-based who are like, oh, this is serious, this is a problem. But then there was a whole other school of thought, and perhaps the bigger school of thought, led by Trump early on, that like, this is not, no, this is being overstated, don't be alarmist. You know, if 15 cases will be down to zero soon. We have it down airtight or close to airtight, as Larry Kudlow famously said. Um, And the argument was, well, this is alarmism, in the same way that people on the far right sometimes think left-wingers are alarmist on climate change. They say there's alarmist when it comes to this pandemic. So look at the effects of that. A new study from the University of Chicago's Becker-Friedman Institute for Economics found that Greater viewership of Hannity relative to Tucker Carlson tonight was strongly associated with a greater number of COVID-19 cases and deaths in the early stages of the pandemic. Fox News host Sean Hannity has been heavily criticized for echoing President Donald Trump's initial attempts to downplay the threat posed by the new coronavirus. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson his colleague at the right-leaning network, who has framed the issue in more nationalistic terms, has been credited with convincing the president to take the pandemic seriously. Carlson warned viewers about the threat posed by the coronavirus from early February, while Hannity originally dismissed the risks associated with the virus before gradually adjusting his position starting late February, the researchers wrote in the working paper. The two hosts diverged greatly on the issue in February, while Hannity expressed optimism that zero people in the United States have died from the coronavirus. Carlson warned viewers that the virus could kill one million people across the country. The researchers commissioned a poll of more than 1,000 Fox News viewers, which found that Carlson's viewers were more likely to change their behavior earlier than Hannity's viewers. Quote, we find Hannity's viewers on average change their behavior in response to the coronavirus five days later than other Fox News viewers, while Carlson's viewers changed behavior three days earlier than other Fox News viewers, the paper said. All right, so if you want some hard numbers here, I have them for you. It's actually just one number, but it paints the whole picture. There were, there are, I guess you can say, 30% more COVID cases among Hannity viewers compared to Tucker Carlson viewers. I also think there might be, although you need more data to prove this, but I think that 
the average age of the Tucker Carlson viewer versus the Hannity viewer is the Tucker Carlson ones are younger. The Hannity ones are older. And so you could argue maybe there's more of a, there's a generational issue there as well. But again, you'd need more data. And I'm just speculating on that point. But what is not speculation is that there are 30% more COVID cases among Hannity viewers than there were among Tucker Carlson viewers. Now, since the early, you know, the early examples here, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know how many of you guys watch right-wing media and, you know, consume it regularly, but I'm pretty sure that there's actually been a little bit of a flip going on. We're now, it's almost like Hannity on some level knew this was an issue where he was just caught. And so he suddenly started taking it way more seriously. And, you know, Trump obviously did the same too, because he had to. When, when the reality smacked him in the face and the market crashed, like, what are you going to do? He had to take seriously. He's president. Um, but Hannity started doing a similar thing on his show. And Tucker, if anything, he's kind of shifted a little bit more in the other direction where he th- thinks that the, you know, the, the shutdowns of everything, like we're going a little too far in trying to stop the virus. And there's more, he thinks there's, you know, we're trampling on civil liberties in the process. So again, I don't know how verified all of that is on the little bit of information I've seen it, after this study came out, it appears to me like they've kind of flipped their positions a little bit or at least gotten closer um, in how they talk about the issue. But it is indisputable that early on Hannity was downplaying it massively and Tucker was not. And look, guys, I don't know what to tell you other than this stuff has real-world consequences. And this is such a clear example of it here. And, you know, actually Lilith told me that a lot of the viewers of this show started taking COVID-19 very seriously because I had done a bunch of segments early on where I was warning everybody and really sounding the alarm. And so I was super happy to hear that, and I hope it had some impact, and I hope you guys are still staying safe out there because it didn't even occur to me that maybe, you know, me doing those segments was having that positive impact of people taking it seriously, but apparently it may have. Um, and then, of course, funny enough, I may have gotten it. <laughs> I, was so, I was more careful than anybody in the freaking country, and I still may have gotten it, which shows you maybe how um, widespread this thing is and how contagious it really is, because it seems like some next-level contagious stuff. Um, so anyway, what I would really, really caution news people to do is you have to – you have to be honest with people. You have to be upfront with people. You have to be straightforward with people. Don't needlessly make things partisan. Um, always tell people exactly what you believe and always base it on the evidence and the facts. Um, and you would think that this stuff is understandable and straightforward, but I'm sorry. I see so much hackery on Fox News, on CNN, on MSNBC, and uh, they're all terrible in different ways, admittedly, and there are different degrees of how terrible they are, but it's just this is this stuff has real world consequences is the point and so the more you educate people the more information you give them the more honest you are with them the better and unfortunately when you're running like a a partisan a rank partisan news outlet the partisanship often overrides the objective reality and that's a shame. And as a result of it, people can literally die if you're not careful. And, 
you know, Hannity, I don't know if he's, he's seen this or not, but if he did see it, yes, I hope he's like, what have I done? What have I done? Um, and I hope he course corrects. And I hope, I hope this is a little bit of a wake-up call that the media really does have a, a massive, massive impact on the country. And we have a responsibility as a result of that. And you don't see these people, as a general rule, understand that that's part and parcel of the job that you're doing. And maybe this will be a little bit of a wake-up call. We'll have to see. All right, now we're going to talk about the oil market, which is obviously a stunning story. The oil market absolutely imploded this week. Um, I'm going to play a little clip for you here. This is an explainer about what happened. This is from Channel 4 News. But I'll say before I show you, I didn't know that it could go into negative territory, but it went into negative territory. In other words, they had to pay to unload the oil. It's like they would pay you to take it. (laughs) That's unfathomable. But anyway, let's see exactly how this came about, and then we'll discuss. About the price of oil is a gauge of economic health. Well, we know that globally economic health has been decimated by the coronavirus pandemic. Demand has really fallen off a cliff, and so too with it the amount of oil, the amount of energy that's needed to fuel the world's factories, the supply chains that carry all our goods all around the world, that power our businesses, that too has tumbled. The problem is the major oil-producing nations continue to churn out millions of barrels of the stuff, even though demand was clearly falling. They didn't react to that. That has led to a glut. And whenever you have a glut of anything, demand and, and demand is falling, then prices also tumble. And that is what is happening here, making matters worse. If you recall, a couple of weeks back, there was a spat between Russia and Saudi Arabia, two of the biggest producers. Neither side would give in, and both sides ended up producing even more oil. Then last week, President Trump, in fact, rarely to his credit, did manage to step in and produce um, a deal, managed to get Russia and all the um, other major oil-producing nations to agree to cut production, including the U.S., because don't forget, the U.S. has also become a major oil producer, too. But the problem is those cuts, millions of barrels a day, have not yet kicked in. And what you've got now is worries that the amount of storage for all this oil that's sloshing around the system is imminently going to uh, run out, particularly here in the U.S. That has caused this major price crash today to levels below zero. So effectively, you will have producers begging buyers. In fact, really, in negative price territory, they will have to pay buyers to take the oil off their hands. This is an unprecedented situation. Oil prices always suffer during economic crises. They always tumble. Never before have they fallen this low. Never before have they fallen into negative territory. And that really underscores, Kathy, the extent of the crisis that we are in here. And again, I say this all the time and don't mean to sound negative, but there are no signs really that the global economy is going to pull out of this crisis anytime soon. 
terrifying. Terrifying. I would love to just, on one day, wake up and not see, like, a brand new, giant, scary issue arise. <laughs> I'm not, it's been happening every single day. The oil market totally imploding one day. We're going to get to another story later on in the show of Trump, you know, tweeting absurd threats at Iran now, say, saying, I give permission to our, to our Navy to shoot at the Iranian ships if they get too close, something along those lines. Like, every day it's something new, and it's like, oh, my God, can we just have, let's get a little bit of breathe, let's get a little bit of calm, let's get, just, we're on baby deer legs right now, let's, let's just get a little bit of stability, please, I would love that. Um, so, here's what's happening, this is what happened in layman's terms, I mean, I think that was a pretty good explainer right there, but, um, nobody's traveling, because we're all home because we're all on lockdown, we're all on quarantine as a result of COVID-19. I mean, it is what it is. That's what's happening. So people are staying home as much as possible. Um, So one of the things that there's no demand for, it's oil. No demand for it. Now, we hadn't seen too much of a disturbance up until this point because we were still unloading all the oil and putting it in our strategic reserves. Now, Trump was paying, I think, $30 a barrel at the time. If he waited a little longer, he could have paid nothing to fill up our strategic reserves. But paying 30 bucks a barrel, we filled up all of our strategic reserves. So nobody's traveling. There's no demand for oil. It's still being produced, and now we have nowhere to even store it. Perfect storm. Perfect storm. Perfect storm for the price to totally collapse. But again, what's amazing is it, it did more than collapse. They literally would pay you to take the oil. <laughs> like, what? So, I mean, when you, when you explain it simply like that, you actually understand, oh, my God, this was unavoidable. Of course this was going to happen because there's no demand for oil. Nobody's traveling, and we filled up the strategic reserves. What did you expect was going to happen? It's almost like you look at it now, and you're like, well, duh, obviously that was going to happen. But guys, this goes to show you, and this is just one example, one example of the unintended consequences of the chaos that has come about as a result of COVID-19. This is just one example. I'm sure there's a thousand other wild things that we're going to be dealing with. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, what the, what the heck else was going to happen? Of course this was going to happen. You got no demand for it. Supplies through the roof. <laughs> like, duh. So now... A lot of people are in a lot of trouble because probably the only nation that can survive this and be okay is Saudi Arabia um, because their method of extraction is a lot cheaper. Meanwhile, all of the, you know, like the fracking that we do here, the oil industry here in the U.S. and in Canada, it costs a lot more money for us to extract it. So the costs that go into it, you're not earning that money back by continuing to do your job. So it's almost like immediately overnight, no longer a real viable business model. And that has the impact of so many jobs, so many people get hurt as a result of that. So naturally, now you have the government, you have Trump and everybody under the sun, like, all right, so another bailout, dog, money printer, go brrrr. I mean, that's the thing. All the time, for all these industries, they're just like, another bailout, another bailout, another bailout, another bailout. 
but I don't see how a bailout could help at all when it's just simple supply and demand. What the hell is going to happen? Nobody still nobody's going to use the oil. Still, the strategic reserves are are full. So there's just it just makes no sense. It's no longer viable. <laughs> so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you know the the thing that makes sense to me is sorry, but you know the investors and the top brass at these companies, the executives, the owners, you're asked out. You're donezo. There's nothing we could do for you. Sorry, bad investment. Uh, This is what happens in capitalism. Sometimes you go bust, and these guys go bust. But what I would do for the workers is, honestly, I would pay them 100% of their salary up to a certain number. You can debate the number, whether it's 50 grand or 75 grand. Um, Pay them 100% of their salary up to that line, and now really is the time. Now, AOC got into a lot of trouble for tweeting this because of how she phrased it. She almost like was celebrating the fact that this was happening. And so it comes across as, and she deleted the tweet because I think she realized that came across as like heartless and not like, I don't care about the people in those industries who just got, you know, their lives destroyed and the rug pulled out from underneath them. So she didn't, the way she worded it was terrible, but what we should do is pay the workers hundred percent of their income up to a certain point. We can again, debate that line, 50 grand, 75 grand, whatever it may be. And right now is when, you go all in on the technologies of the future and you do what is the equivalent of a new new deal for green and renewable technology to create those jobs of the future, whether it's, you know, wind, solar, geothermal, um, thorium. Now is the time to make the investments to, to create the jobs because literally the oil market imploded overnight. So, you can try to bail out the oil industry and try to drag out the inevitable, but with no signs that things are going to return to normal for the near future and even the you know, moderate future, um, there's never been a better time to go all in on, on making this change, making this transition to green and renewable technology. And what's the old saying? Necessity is the father of invention. Well, now it's necessary because all these people lost their jobs and an industry imploded overnight, and a lot of people are going to feel a lot of pain. What we can do is structure it so that the only people who feel the pain are the billionaire investors and the owners of the company, and who cares to steal from the guy who was on CNBC who made this point very eloquently? Who cares? That's capitalism. That's the nature of it. If they go bust, they go bust. So don't bail out them. Pay the workers what their wages are and then make the transition to green renewable technology And, um, you know, if some oil companies survive it, okay. But really, you should not be propping up and bailing out a dinosaur industry that has to go away at some point anyway. You can now start making the transition, again, while fully covering workers' incomes. We can make that transition. And it's necessary, it's important, but they're certainly not going to do that because we have a Republican administration in there. I don't even think a Democratic administration would do it. But... um, what they're much more likely to do is the same thing they've done with all the other businesses that they've done this with, which is just throw money at them, throw giant bailouts at them with no strings attached. They'll squander the money. The people at the top of the company will take the money. They'll screw the workers. They'll lay people off anyway. And then in a couple of years, they'll come back to the government hat in hand asking for another bailout. But this is really an unprecedented situation because there's no demand for oil. 
So they absolutely, they have no choice. They have to cut the supply and the production. They have to do it. So there's no demand for the oil and the strategic reserves are full. So of course something like this was going to happen. So a lot of changes are coming very, very quickly and very rapidly. And it has been brought about by uh, COVID-19, but what the hell else is on the horizon? We're going to find out together, but there's going to be more. All right, next, we're going to talk about Bernie. Going to talk about Bernard Sanders. Here's a story that may come as a surprise to the insiders in Washington, D.C. Poll, one in five voters prefer Sanders for Biden VP pick. One in five. Now, you might say, well, hold on now. That's kind of low. And what's the, I forget, I didn't jot down the polling company. I think it's Harris X, Hill Harris X, although I could be wrong. It's a respected polling company. I know that much. I'm just forgetting which one it is because I didn't jot it down. But anyway, when you go through it, Bernie gets 20%. He's the number one choice. He gets more support than anybody else. Now, you could argue, well, yeah, but that's just because of you know, name recognition. I mean, a lot of the other people who they threw in there have you know, very similar or the same name recognition as Bernie, and Bernie still got more than anybody else. So I know about all that, man. Maybe there's actually something here. So behind Bernie, Bernie's at 20%. Then Warren's underneath Bernie. Um, and then in third, and this is unsurprising given what's happened in the past couple weeks, but Andrew Cuomo is third with 11%. And, of course, he's been pumped out there relentlessly because, uh, you know, New York has – leading the nation, might still be leading the nation in COVID-19 cases, and so he was kind of hoisted into the national spotlight, and he's been doing these press conferences where he gives people the plans, and he talks about the data, and, and all that stuff, and I, you know, I really think that it's, it's not right that he's being pumped out there more than anybody else, because I would argue that the governor of Washington, um, Jay Inslee, he did a much better job handling COVID-19 than Andrew Cuomo did. Andrew Cuomo cut Medicaid by billions of dollars, during the crisis. That's devastating. That's terrible. Um, in other ways, you could say maybe he did a decent job, but there are definitely governors like Jay Inslee who did a better job. But because he's getting all the media spotlight now, because it's New York, um, now all of a sudden he's number three on that VP list. He's 11% number three. Then comes a tie between Harris and Klobuchar, Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar. They're, they both got 10% respectively. Then you have Bloomberg at 8%. I have no idea how this guy managed to get 8%. That's stunning to me because he's bought everything. He bought everything. <laughs> By the way, he spent over over a billion dollars. Over a billion dollars trying to get elected. And he got Dickie McGee's axe for it. But to him, that's play money. When you're as rich as he is, whatever, doesn't matter. He buy whatever the hell he wants. So blow a billion trying to run for president when I could have used that to 
you know, put a roof over the heads of homeless people? Whatever, bro. Could have used it to feed people? Whatever, bro. Could have used it to help pay medical bills for people? Whatever, bro. I wanted to, I wanted to fulfill a boyhood dream and try to own a country. Um, but he got 8% somehow. I don't know how. Um, then comes Mayor Pete. He got 7%. And then at the bottom was uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who is the governor of, I believe, Michigan. She's at 3%. She's the daughter of an executive in uh, a for-profit health insurance company. It's right in there in the Democratic Party. Um, so number one is Bernie Sanders. And I think what's so frustrating to me about all this is that it, it's a foregone conclusion that Biden is not going to pick Bernie. And everybody's just files that under the duck category. Like, well, obviously, that's not going to happen. That shouldn't be obvious. And in fact, if he wanted to make an important, intelligent, strategic choice, he would pick Bernie. Why? Because it's about ideology. It's about ideology. If you have, if the people who are most turned off by Biden are young lefties, well, who does the best with young lefties? Bernie Sanders. Guys, I told you, I've laid out in so much detail what Biden could have done to get my support. And one of the things is pick Bernie or Nina for VP. I would support Joe Biden. I would vote for Joe Biden if he picked Bernie or Nina for VP. He's not going to do it. But that's one of the things that could get me on board. And he's not going to do it. So it would be a strategic choice, but the reason why everybody's, oh, it's foregone conclusion he's not going to pick him, is because they want uh, a woman. They're prioritizing the gender over the policy stuff. And, see, they think, like, oh, if I pick a woman that's left-wing enough to appease the base, as if the gender is, like, the end-all, be-all. Well, Sarah Palin's a woman. If you picked her, I'm pretty sure the left would hate it. So what are you talking about? That's not a concession. It's not a concession to do that. The other thing is um, I'm sure there's pressure to a, a woman of color as well, but here's my guess. My guess is he's not going to pick Kamala Harris because he uh, famously said in one of the debates, I'm going to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Now, you hear that and I hear that, and normal people go, okay, that doesn't necessarily mean he's not going to pick a black woman to be VP. But in Washington, D.C., in corporate Democrat world, that's exactly what that means. That means when I don't pick a woman of color, don't come after me because it's not a woman of color because I'm going to put one on the Supreme Court. So I'm letting you know up front that's what I'm going to do so you can't criticize me when I pick a woman who's not a woman of color for VP. This is what I'm here for, guys. I'm here to decode all the Washington speak for you and tell you what's really going on. So, you know, I'll tell you who I think it's going to be. I'll tell you who I think it's going to be. His VP pick is either going to be Amy Klobuchar, and if it is Amy Klobuchar, he promised Amy Klobuchar VP when she dropped out and endorsed him because he had to get Biden needed, and Obama helped him with this too. I got to get Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete to drop out and endorse me to have any chance of winning because Bernie was going to run away with it. So they got Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar to drop out and endorse Biden, but they were given stuff. Mayor Pete was given some position in the administration, obviously, and we'll find that out in due time if Biden wins, and he might win. Um, And Klobuchar, it's very possible she was like, I'm not going anywhere unless you give me VP. And so he's like, okay, fine, I'll give you VP. I'll give you VP. So either it's Amy Klobuchar for VP, and it was promised as a deal to screw Bernie to get them to drop out and endorse Biden, Um, or it's Gretchen Whitmer. It's one of the two. It's one of the two. Um, I would be absolutely floored if it's not Gretchen Whitmer 
or Amy Klobuchar. And who knows, maybe they'll throw a curveball, maybe they change their mind at the last minute, but that's what it'll be. But, I mean, it's really sad that we even have evidence to back up what we're calling for. What are we calling for? We're calling for Bernie or Nina for VP. That's what I'm calling for. I can only speak for myself. You know, you guys make up your own mind and do whatever the hell you want to do. But for me, he doesn't pass my, my test, my, my lenient standards on the issues. And I've gone through it with you guys before, my top five issues. I need to be convinced that Biden will actually fight for one or two of my top five issues. I'm not at all convinced of that. I'm not. So I made an exception and said, if you pick Bernie or Nina for VP, I will support you. But that's it. And Bernie could have been smart and perhaps got my support if he gave Biden 10 executive orders and said, if you implement these in the first 100 days, I will support you. Because then Bernie could have showed me tangibles. Hey, look, he's going to legalize marijuana. He, he, he says, I'll, I'll sign the executive order that takes it off as a scheduled substance. You know, he could have gotten me that way too, but Bernie didn't do that. So there are no executive orders to look forward to that are concrete that we know are coming. So all these ways he failed, the last remaining you know, opportunity to get me and a lot of people like me is if you pick Bernie for VP and he's not going to do it. And that's terrifying and that's upsetting. Because, and here's the thing, guys. I've said this in other segments and I'll say it again now. People get a misimpression. Like, I'm not trying to be a, like a spokesperson for not voting in this election. I'm really not. I'm actually depressed by the fact that I can't, like, uh, that Biden is so bad he doesn't even pass my lenient standards and Trump obviously I have no interest in. So... That's upsetting. That's depressing. And I'm not trying to, like, I'm going to rip this position and try to argue to get you guys to agree with me. I wish Biden was good enough that I could vote for him. It's almost like I'm rooting for him to do the things that would get my support, but he's just not going to do it. He's not going to do it. So then I'm faced with give up on everything I believe in (laughs) or sit out the election. Okay, I'll just sit out because that's not as bad as giving up on everything I believe in. So um, if you had Bernie's voice in the room, if he was your VP, I would know he's always pushing you in that direction that I agree with, so I would be able to, um, to do it. And by the way, that would be a genuine olive branch. I mean, you want to talk about a real olive branch trying to get lefties. Hey, I'm picking the guy who you all love as my VP. Good enough? Actually, yes, that would definitely be good enough. <laughs> so, um, but he's not going to do it. But hey, at least we know 20% of people agree with me. He's number one in that poll. Number one. If the Biden campaign was smart, if they weren't so drunk on identity politics and nonsense, then maybe they would consider it and maybe they would do it, and that would make all the difference in the world. But again, I'm not holding my breath because unfortunately it's not going to happen. And that's a shame. All right, next. President Trump, in one of his press conferences um, on COVID-19, went after globalists. So this was an interesting shot. Let's take a look. It's underscored the vital importance of reshoring our supply chains and bringing them back into the United States where they belong, where they should have never left. What happens if you're in a war and you have a supply chain where half of your supplies are given to you by other countries. Who are, who are the people that thought of this? These are globalists. It doesn't work. It certainly doesn't work during rough times, bad times, or dangerous times. 
I've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more. I wish that Trump and the Republicans and the Democrats could get together and agree that we got to fix these supply chains and we have to start manufacturing more here at home. We have to do that as a matter of necessity, as a matter of necessity. We're dependent on a nation that we kind of have hostile relations with. So that seems really stupid. So I wish they would fix the supply chains, but they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. You have arguments from a right-wing perspective and a left-wing perspective to bring the supply chains home, and they're not going to do it. The left-wing perspective is, I care about American workers, so let's get American workers good-paying jobs. Let's start manufacturing more stuff here. That's the left-wing argument. The right-wing argument is, Trump's kind of alluding to it there, it's a nationalistic argument of, you know, I'm all about made in America, man, and, and you know, why are we dependent on foreign countries that uh, kind of take away our sovereignty by, they take away our sovereignty in a roundabout way by us being so reliant on them. So that's like a right-wing argument for it, a nationalistic argument for it. So, there, I mean, there's obvious reasons the right and the left can agree. The only people who really disagree are the hardcore libertarians and silly Democrats. But that, get, that gets into why I'm actually covering this story. So everybody knows I want to bring the supply chains back here. I would love that. I'd love that. I think we should trade as a matter of necessity, not you know willy-nilly to pad the bottom line for profits for multinational corporations. We should trade as a matter of necessity, but... As much as we can produce here, we should produce here. But here's what's happening. So Democrats will listen to what Trump said there, and you know what they'll do, because we've seen this before. We've seen this in the past. They'll say, oh, my God, Trump just attacked the globalists. Trump hates globalism. He loves nationalism. If he loves nationalism, if he's praising the word nationalism, well, that." He's like admitting he's a white nationalist. When you say the word nationalism, white goes with it all the time. So he's a white nationalist. So they attack him for attacking globalism because the idea is, the argument is, globalism is, is, is tolerance. Globalism is tolerance and it's world cooperation. And we're all in favor of tolerance and world cooperation. So how could you be against globalism? This is what, you know, the establishment-minded neoliberal Democrats will say. This is their argument. They literally get offended when he attacks globalists. They do. And, and listen, it is true that you have people like Alex Jones and that kind of flavor and variety of commentator who they view, like, the globalists as, like, the New World Order Illuminati and these are the people who secretly control everything and, and they're evil. And... So there is a little bit of right-wing conspiracy stuff mixed in with a term like that. But generally speaking, the argument that you're going to get from a bunch of partisan Democrats is he's attacking globalism because he's a nationalist. He's really a white nationalist, so it's racist because globalism is just tolerance and cooperation with the world, and we all support tolerance and cooperation with the world. So that's what the partisan Democrats say. Now, there are a lot of Republicans a lot of Republicans, never Trump Republicans, and even your run-of-the-mill establishment Republicans, what do they say in response to Trump here? They say, oh, but Don, you don't get it. Free trade gives us cheap goods, and free trade is always the way to go. So you, you're attacking something you don't really understand, 
these market forces are beyond our control. You can't have the government try to regulate that or control that. So therefore, you're wrong to attack the globalists because this is the way the market works and this is what's most efficient. And we get cheap consumer goods as a result of these trade deals and as a result of the supply lines going back to China. So there's nothing wrong with that. And the dirty little secret is that these partisan Democrats and these establishment Republicans, the real reason why they're making these arguments is not necessarily because they believe it, although some of them may believe it, but it's because they're corrupt and they're bought by the industries that are making more money because the supply lines go to China. So, in other words, the position that I have, there's, there's a whole group of conservatives called paleoconservatives. One of the issues that they more agree with the left on, uh, it's trade. So there's a bunch of paleocons and there's a bunch of people like me on populist left who agree on this issue, who agree, yes, let's have the supply lines come here, let's create more jobs here, let's do a lot of manufacturing here as a matter of necessity and as a matter of for our economy. It'd be wonderful for our economy. Sure, you may have the price of consumer goods go up a little bit, but you know what the trade-off is? You get a lot of Americans with a lot of good-paying jobs and we're more self-sufficient. That seems like a trade-off I'm willing to make. But we're never going to get the paleocons and the populist left people are never going to win. And we're never going to win because of all the big money corrupting politics. So they're never going to say, let's have our supply line, change our supply lines and be more reliant on ourselves. They're never going to do that because they're making more money by having stuff made in Chinese damn near slave factories. So that's where we are, guys. That's where we are. And what Trump's saying here is true. Um, he's right that we got to bring it back here, but don't even get it twisted because he's not even going to do it. Like he's act, he talks a good game on some trade stuff. He never does the actual steps he could do to, to fix that. Just so everybody understands, Trump could, with one executive order, massively increase U.S. manufacturing. There's an executive order. It's the Buy American Executive Order. Right now the federal government says everything that we buy for the federal government has to be from the U.S., but there's a little asterisk, and the asterisk is, and all of our allies are included in that, too. So, in other words, you could buy from China, you could buy from Israel, you could buy from any of our allies, and that counts as made in America. But it's not made in America, so what Trump could do is, no, I'm going to sign an executive order that really mandates whatever we buy has to be made here at home. That would overnight massively increase U.S. manufacturing. He hasn't signed that executive order. You want to know why? He also has sold out to these same industries. So he could do all this talk against globalism that he wants. He's not changing Dickie McGee's acts. He's not changing Dickie McGee's acts. He could punish outsourcers with an executive order. That's all it takes. I'm going to sign an executive order, punish all the outsourcers. No federal contracts for anybody who outsources jobs. He could do that. He hasn't done it. Why? Because he doesn't want to do it. Why? Because it's all a mirage. It's all a game. It's all like, I'm going to pretend like I'm, you know, strong on manufacturing in the U.S., and then he doesn't. 93,000 jobs were outsourced in his first year as president. He didn't put a stop to any of that stuff. So I'm telling you, man, we do need to bring the supply lines back here, but they haven't done it, and they're not going to do it, and it's a shame. Okay, now Joe Biden. Joe Biden 
released an ad with the purpose of uh, bringing in young voters. Let's see how that went. Like outside, um, I was kind of just standing there on my phone. We all knew that he was coming out. I'm a like, I'm a President Biden. How are you? Like, I was like freaking out. Like, I just hear like a roar, and then I was just like, oh my god, you can kind of see him from like the very back of my selfie. It's been my Facebook profile picture for the last four years. It's not a very good picture of me, but it is a picture of me with my President Joe Biden. I lived in Delaware all my life, so I grew up. Uh, we saw him at the grocery store, getting some coffee on our college campus. I worked um, at the university, and he just came and walked into my job, asked a couple questions about what we like to do. He's really trying to get to know each one of us, and you can see that, you know. He's just like your cool family member that you know, or like a family friend that you just love to. He's like, hi, but like, I wouldn't call him Joe, but like if I knew him well enough, I'd be like, hey, Joe. That's the kind of vibe I get from him. I've always loved politics. I've been involved in campus organizing since my freshman year. All politics is personal when you live it. The reason I'm here today is because I really believe in Joe Biden. Please keep doing your thing. Please. I need you to win. I love this guy, and I gotta, I gotta help him become president for sure. I support Joe Biden for president because of the Obama Biden meme. <laughs> Okay, listen, he doesn't bring up policy because he can't bring up policy because he's a neoliberal corporatist and that's what he's going to pursue. That's what he's going to fight for. And that is totally uninspiring to young people. So what do you do? I don't know. Let's do an ad and I got it. It'll be like a psychological trick. We'll show a bunch of young people talking about how much they like Joe And the young people at home will be like, I'm young, and they're young, and they seem to like this fellow. I guess I like them too. I hate you all so much. Uh, uh, That's so condescending. Uh, I mean, this is Pokemon go to the polls type stuff. That's what this is. That's what this is. Um, So funny, you know, Bernie used to do the ads where he talks about his record all the time. Joe didn't because it's hard to do an ad to appeal to young people. What are you going to do, brag about the Iraq war vote? Are you going to brag about NAFTA? How about TPP, which you've been pushing for relentlessly, even in the, in the last term of Obama? What about the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act? You know what that is, guys? That is the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which was a very important piece of financial regulation, which when it was repealed that helped lead to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. So this guy served Wall Street, and they got rich, and people lost their homes and were kicked out of their homes. So that's what he did. He supported that Wall Street deregulation, which is supposed to be a right-wing idea. Joe Biden supported it. He supported the Patriot Act. Government can spy on everybody. He supported the Patriot Act. So weird. He can't do an ad where he's like, and look at my wonderful record, because he's been wrong. So what does he do? 
Here's a young person saying they like me, and they like the memes with Obama. You like memes, young one? I do too. Vote for me, and let me sniff your hair. I still can't get over the Medicare for All thing, how he literally said, he was asked the question, this is such a softball, the legislation is signed, and it's made it to your desk. So in other words, all the fight that usually is one of the reasons why Democrats give, ah, we can't get it through, so it's not possible, what do you want me to do? They said, skip all that. It's, it made it to your desk. It passed the House of Representatives. It passed the Senate. Medicare for all made it to your desk. He said, I, yeah, I'd veto it. I got good news for Joe Biden, and the good news is this. And I mean this, too. I mean this, too. It is very, very possible he wins this election even without the young people and the leftists. It's very possible. It's very possible. You want to know why? He just won the primary with no young people and no leftists. So there was a giant increase in the older suburban voters drunk on CNN and MSNBC and basic anti-Trumpism. So, okay, let's see if that coalition can win you the general. And I'm not kidding when I say it might. It might win in the general. It might win in the general for sure. But, you know, one thing's for damn sure. These ads are terrible. That's terrible. I'd rather reach out to me with this silliness. I'd rather you just be like, you know what? Okay, fine. You don't like me. I don't like you. Fine. I'm, you know, I'll get the old suburban uh, voters. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, that's who your policies are more geared towards anyway. Even though in the Democratic primary, almost every Bernie idea polled overwhelmingly popular, but those people still turned around and voted for Biden, which shows that they're thinking of electability. Like, oh, who could be Trump? Obviously, Bernie can't. Biden can, even though he can't speak. Let's go with him. So, but bottom line is, I don't, this is so condescending and so pedantic and so ridiculous. And I would rather you not even reach out at all than do this stuff. Um, But, I mean, listen, we have our disagreements and it is what it is. And um, he's not going to agree on any of the things I care about. So, you know, that's the decision that I had to make. Do I sacrifice all my values? Um, or do I just sit out? And so I'm sitting out. But, hey, if to be fair to Joe Biden and to be fair to people who might listen to this and don't agree with me, you guys are correct that Biden is better on the courts and he is better on climate change. That's a fact. So if you say, you know what, that's enough, and I'm a, I'll go do what I have to do even though I won't like it, I'm not against you. You do whatever you want, man. I'm seriously not trying to convert people to my way of thinking. You know, but I'm just doing my job here. And when I see that ad, it makes my blood boil. And so I had to share that with all of you. All right, next, Trump goes after Pelosi. President Trump released an ad going after Nancy Pelosi over uh, COVID-19. And this shows how, you know, out of touch she is. Let's watch. I turned out of that $350 billion fund to help small businesses and its workers get through the shutdown. It will be up to Congress to restock it, but Democrats blocking that move this morning. They asked for a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours. I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. They objected, and I... Congratulate the Senate Democrats. Speaker Pelosi, what are you going to share with us from your home? Chocolate candy, 
thousands have been forced to wait for hours at food banks all across the country. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Chocolate, and then we have some other chocolate here. We just got it. We stopped the ice cream. You don't want to eat up everything all at one time. I can't do it much longer. I'm trying so hard. Lord, can we say enjoying? Haven't I admit that? Yeah, we're, we're starving, and I like it better than anything else. Taping this segment, there are 22 million people out of work. This specific program is about stopping job losses today. This is hurting people bad. Other people in our family go for some other flavors, but... Right now, it's survival mode. You don't know where next something else will come from. I don't know what I would have done if ice cream were not invented. I just wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who considers himself on the left, who defends Nancy Pelosi, you're a sucker. You're a mark. She is the weakest link. She's a terrible leader. She always caves to Republicans. And you're out of your mind if you think, oh, no, she's actually somehow playing hardball with them. You know who she plays hardball with? The left. The left. She loves, she gets along swimmingly with the right and always makes deals on their terms, on their terms. Remember when nobody was paying attention and uh, we blinked and they reauthorized the Patriot Act and gave Trump more spying powers? Remember that? I remember that. I remember that very well. Remember when um, Trump got more money for the military than he was even originally asking for? Remember that? I remember that. These are the deals that Pelosi makes. They paint her as an out-of-touch elitist, and it works because... She's an out-of-touch elitist. She's an elitist corporate neoliberal. That's what her politics are. And by the way, she does this segment. It didn't occur to her for a split second beforehand. Hey, maybe at a time when 22 million Americans lost their jobs and people can't pay the bills, maybe, maybe it's not a good idea to show people my two $12,000 refrigerators and freezers Um, and don't show them, like, the most expensive ice cream on the market that I have jam-packed in my freezer. Maybe at least try to have some sympathy for people who are struggling and understand that you are supposed to represent these people, but no, it didn't occur to her. You want to know why? Because she's massively out of touch. Out of touch. The fact that the Republicans are also total corporate sellouts, but they're able to effectively portray her as a corporate sellout and an out-of-touch elitist? What does that say? What does that say? I mean, it's really embarrassing. And I'm sorry, but the Republicans are much better at playing politics. They cut better ads. They're more aggressive. They, they pierce through more. The arguments from the Democrats are usually lame as hell. I mean, we're talking about a crisis where We haven't gotten hazard pay for frontline workers. That alone is totally inexcusable. We haven't gotten money for states and cities. McConnell's out there saying, let them go bankrupt. Uh, We haven't gotten an election security bill. We want to all vote from home now because nobody wants to get the virus. Still none of that. No oversight on the bailout. No food stamp money when people need it. No rent freeze, no mortgage freeze, no stimulus checks, no UBI. None of that stuff. And the Democrats are unable to craft a convincing ad against the Republicans, and the Republicans can convince, cut one against the Democrats. I got news for everybody. None of them are working for you. None of them are working for you. There's a reason why the, 
the cruise line industry got a bailout. They don't even pay U.S. taxes. They got a bailout before people got COVID-19 treatment paid for. Isn't that wild? We still don't have a recurring stimulus check. We still don't have wages taken care of. But $4.5 trillion is handed over to giant corporations. So we've implemented corporate socialism and the people aren't being helped. And instead of your Democratic leaders going on the offense and fighting for you, they're not fighting for you. And the right is correctly portraying them as total, totally out-of-touch elitists. Kick all the bums out, man. Kick them all out. I'm so sick of this. I'm so sick of this. Again, if, if you've fallen further, remember the queen of shade, the clap. Oh, she, she clapped for her. She clapped for Trump in a condescending way. If you fall for all that window dressing as if Pelosi's fighting for you, you're a mark because she's not. She's one of the biggest corporate Democrats, one of the biggest sellouts, and she has been a terrible leader, and she makes it easy for the right to win. People run elections. They're not even running against Nancy Pelosi. They're in other districts, but they will run ads against Pelosi because she's that much of a political liability, and you still have suckers on the left defending her. Well, congratulations. Have fun with your no-hazard pay, no money for states and cities, no election security, no oversight on the bailout, no food stamp money, no rent freeze, no mortgage freeze, no stimulus checks, no UBI. Have fun with absolutely nothing as you continue to defend your complete corporate goon loser politicians. Okay, now uh, Donald Trump and Iran. So this week, Trump was watching Fox and Friends. He probably does that every single week. But they covered a story of Iranian ships allegedly being provocative against the U.S. in the Persian Gulf. Um, So Trump takes to Twitter and he says the following. I have instructed the United States Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats. If they harass our ships at sea... So, I mean, I mentioned this earlier. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Every day it's something. Every day. It's like, okay, the stock market is imploding on this day. The more coronavirus cases shoot through the roof on this day. You know, you wake up now and, and the oil market crashed. And then the next day is, I, you know, look at Twitter and there's Trump saber-rattling with Iran, as if right now. First of all, you should never do a war with Iran because they're not attacking us and they're not going to. You're going on the offense. You're aggressive, so you're the problem. So you shouldn't do a war with Iran, period. But especially at a time like right now, we have a pandemic ripping through the country. We got a lot of things that need your attention here. Again, I have instructed the U.S. Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats if they harass our ships at sea. I want to repeat for you what's going on. The United States is in the Persian Gulf. And there were Iranian ships allegedly acting provocative towards us. That's by their border, not by ours. 
I mean, look at the entitlement that we have. Look at the entitlement. If there were Iranian ships in the Gulf of Mexico, you think we would be maybe acting aggressively towards those ships to kind of let them know, like, get the hell out of here? I think so. You want to know why? Because that's our water. That's by us. That's by us. That's a lot closer to us. So we're in the Persian Gulf. We shouldn't even be in the damn Persian Gulf. And they're like, let me get out of here. What are you doing? And we're like, oh, how dare you, good sir? I was just over here minding my own business and being aggressive towards you. And then you responded. Unacceptable. I hate all this. None of this makes any sense. By the way, let's have a conversation about the reality. The United States has been waging economic warfare against Iran, and I use those words on purpose, because it is economic warfare. We've sanctioned them like crazy. There's been a bigger outbreak of COVID-19 there as a result of our actions. We're not even allowing in a bunch of medicine to Iran. We're stopping medicine from going in there. We're strangling the country economically. And then we have the nerve. When we are close to them and their ships respond to us, we act like we're the victim. Trump acts like we're the victim. What happened? What happened? To, oh, Mr. Anti-War Trump, what are we even doing over there? What are we doing in the Middle East? We got to get out of there. Well, would you look at that? You increase all of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, all the drone strikes that we're doing all across the Middle East and, and in Africa, 432% increase. And now you're casually saber-rattling with Iran. You've instructed U.S. ships to shoot down, any, shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats. So in other words, casually start a war because I saw a dumbass segment on Fox News. What a joke. What a joke. The reality star president is acting like the reality star president. Maybe take care of the pandemic here and the oil market crash and the stock market crash and the 22 million unemployed people and the lack of UBI and the lack of a rent freeze. You got plenty of stuff to take care of here. We still have a freaking mask shortage and test shortage. And you're talking about starting a war with Iran. Unbelievable. And again, I'll make this point again because it drives me goddamn crazy. Where are the Democrats? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I know you reserve all of your attacking Trump for dumb issues where it makes no sense to attack him. And then we actually give you something where you should be like, whoa, what are you doing? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found because they don't care. They don't care if we get into a war with Iran. They're also bought and owned by the military industrial complex. What's good for their profits? I'm not going to say anything. Sure. If Trump wants to start a war with Iran, I'll sit here and say, oh, no. What about the process, good sir? You should have a vote on it before you do anything. The whole system is broken. The whole system is corrupt. And look at the results. Are you happy? Now, what the hell are we going to wake up to tomorrow? Because, again, every day it's something new. Every day it's something extreme. And I'm sick of it. All right, final story of the day. Here we go, bitch. So here's an interesting story that popped up on my radar yesterday. Uh, This is from Howie Hawkins. That's this guy here. He's uh, currently the Green Party candidate. And he said the following. To Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter. On Wednesday, April 15th, Twitter suspended the presidential campaign account of Green Party 2020 presidential candidate Howie Hawkins 
without warning, only a notification from Twitter after the fact that the account had been suspended for impersonation. An appeal from the campaign was rejected with no reason given, despite the fact that Howie Hawkins is a campaign account overseen by Howie Hawkins himself and that many other politicians are allowed to have more than one account without interference from Twitter. The decision by Twitter to suspend Howie Hawkins' presidential uh, campaign account with no justification beyond a nonsensical charge of impersonation is extremely troubling in a country that is supposed to stand for values of free speech and open debate. We ask that Twitter uh, immediately reinstate and verify Howie Hawkins' presidential campaign account and cease all efforts to stifle the free speech of, of the Hawkins campaign, particularly for the remainder of the 2020 presidential election. Okay, so I, uh, I have to admit, I haven't read up too much on this Howie Hawkins guy, so I cannot give you any kind of substantive breakdown of what his policies are. Um, I will tell you that it's almost certainly the case that I, that I agree with him way more than I agree with Biden or Trump. Um, but I still haven't, you know, read through his platform, see where he's at. Um, so I won't comment on whether or not he's a candidate worth supporting. You know, you guys could figure that all out on your own if you'd like. But the reason I'm doing this segment is very simple. Isn't that interesting? The Green Party candidate gets his Twitter pulled. Now, we all know it's a common corporate Democrat talking point that the reason why Hillary lost in 2016 was Jill Stein because she took just enough votes in all those Rust Belt states. Well, the fact of the matter is they actually did detailed polling of the people who voted for Jill Stein, and it was really low. The number was, I, I forget the exact number, so don't quote me on this, but it was somewhere around like 20% of the people who voted for Jill Stein said, yes, if I wasn't voting for Jill Stein, I would vote for Hillary. So in other words, 80% of people, or roughly 80%, were, were split between I would just stay at home or I would vote for Gary Johnson, or I would vote for Trump. So for them to just assume, like, oh, all the Green Party people would go to Hillary if Jill wasn't in, that's not true. So it's not Jill Stein's fault that um, Hillary lost. And also, by the way, we live in a free country, and you should be able to vote for whoever the hell you want to vote for, and that's the end of the conversation. So, you know, I'm not going to comment on Howie Hawkins' uh, platform, policies, candidacy, whatever. But what I will say is, Perhaps it's not a coincidence that the Green Party got blamed in 2016 for Trump winning, and now it could be that Twitter and, you know, they, they got a bunch of friends in the Democratic Party that they were like, let's try to avoid that happening again. And so I'm going to pull down the Green Party candidate and hope that he gets no traction whatsoever. Now, I have no evidence of that, and it's just a theory. I want to let everybody know up front, this is not anything that's proven on, on my part, but um. I'm just saying it's a possibility that this wasn't just an accident. Whoops, we happened to pull the Green Party candidate. It very well could have been pull the Green Party candidate because we want to suppress them on purpose because we don't want them gaining any traction because we want them to get as few votes as possible because we will blame them if the Democrat loses. So that's definitely possible. So anyway, what I'm here to do is to tell Jack, reinstate this guy. You know this is nonsense. You know this makes no sense. If you guys are watching this now, you know, do me a favor, tweet at Jack, say the same thing, or tweet at Twitter support, whoever. But let's, get, let's be involved in this here, because this is not right, and we know that this is not right, and this guy shouldn't have got his Twitter account pulled, regardless of what you think of him, agree with him, disagree with him, whatever it may be. Um, and the final thing I'll say is this. Big news broke last night, where apparently Jesse Ventura sent a letter to the Green Party 
potentially asking, hey, can I run as the Green Party candidate? So it's very possible. Now, he's denying that he said it exactly like that, so I don't know. But it's possible that Jesse Ventura hops in the race and runs either as a Green Party candidate or maybe an independent. He's at the very least thinking about it. And so that will be fascinating if he runs because he, he's already a celebrity and he's already well-known. And you can't, like a guy like Howie Hawkins, with all due respect to Howie Hawkins, he's not really known. So he's not there. Nobody, it's, it's not going to register for most people. But Jesse Ventura, if he announces he's running, there's headlines everywhere that he's running. And um, I've already seen people like preemptively blaming Jesse for if Trump gets a second term. These people never give it a rest, man. They never give it a rest. It's always everybody else's fault. <laughs> but anyway, so he might run. That would be fascinating if he runs. I'm very interested to see what he does. And obviously, I'll keep you updated on that as well. But for now, Howie Hawkins, get this guy his Twitter account back. All right, we are done, baby. We are done, baby. Love you guys. Uh, everybody stay safe out there. Keep social distancing and stay in as much as possible, and I hope everybody's getting by okay. So love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.